Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Helper. And I'm Mary Matte. Hey, everybody. Reminder, our website is UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com. Go there to support the show and get bonus content. And this week, we have a really tremendous interview with Reverend Munter Isak. He is a Palestinian Christian theologian and a pastor in Bethlehem. And he is the one who gave that very famous sermon recently, uh, saying that basically that Christmas in Palestine, the birthplace of Jesus, was canceled because of the Israeli genocide in Gaza. So we're going to speak to him about that and a lot more. Yeah, and he he makes really important points about how kind of the existence of Christians in Palestine debunks the claim that the occupation is just a religious conflict between Muslims and Jews. Very grateful that he took time to talk to us. Uh, So should we start with the four basic food groups? Yes. And for Democrats suck, we're going to start with the State Department, which is now responding to calls from Israeli extremists in the government who are openly calling for the expulsion of Palestinians from Gaza. Uh, They include Itamar Ben-Gavir, who is the Minister of National Security, and the Finance Minister, Bezalel Smotrich, uh, who have basically said that their plan, their goal, is to get all of Palestinians in Gaza to leave, forced migration. The State Department claims to not be happy about this, so this is what they say. The U.S. rejects the inflammatory and irresponsible statements from Israeli ministers Smotrich and Ben-Gavir. There should be no mass displacement of Palestinians from Gaza. So, wow. Wow. So now the State Department claims to be against mass expulsion of Palestinians. While meanwhile, it is doing everything it can to expedite weapons to the government that is carrying out this plan. Uh, Tony Blinken just for the second time waived a uh, law which requires congressional authorization of U.S. weapons transfers so he could speed up the, the transfer of tank shells to Israel. So actions speak louder than words, and U.S. actions are only to encourage the, the very same mass displacement that they claim to oppose. So disgusting. So much blood on their hands. It's unbelievable. Here's a criticism of the State Department position. Uh, this comes from Tariq Kenny Shawa. He is a Palestinian-American writer. And this is what he says. If this is truly their position, the Biden administration needs to take the necessary steps to prevent Israel from creating the facts on the ground in Gaza that leave no other option but the mass displacement of Palestinians from Gaza. The first step is halting weapons shipments. And that is the first step. And by the way, the Biden administration has just reiterated that halting weapons shipments is off the table. There was this long article in the New York Times about how there's strain between Biden and Netanyahu. At the bottom, it says, by the way, amidst all these strain relations, there's no way Biden's going to halt any weapons to Israel. So basically, all this is performative from this talk of the U.S. criticizing Israeli ministers to Biden officials claiming that they have differences with Netanyahu. It's all a performance to make it look as if the Biden administration is pushing back. And really, they're offering full-scale support for the genocide. Biden is a Zionist, as he likes to say all the time. So disgusting. Wow. I keep saying so disgusting. I sound like a broken record, but I don't know how else to describe it. It's just, it's repulsive. It's terrible. We're not going to have the words to properly document this moment. Yeah, that's true. It's just so horrible. It's so unprecedented. Well, for Republicans suck, we have... uh, a response from Elise Stefanik, the congresswoman who put uh, presidents of MIT, Harvard, and Penn 
through the ringer in a kind of uh, modern day McCarthyism. She questioned them about allowing speech defending genocide on campuses and anti-Semitism. Of course, that alleged anti-Semitic speech and genocide defense was uh, allowing people to say things like from the river to, to the sea, Palestine will be free or uh, intifada. So after 28 days of withstanding this, Claudine Gay, the president, the former president of Harvard, finally resigned. So let's hear how Elise Stefanik reacted to this news. This congressional investigation is not going to stop because of the resignation of these university presidents. There are deep institutional rots in these formerly prestigious universities, whether it's their DEI offices or whether it's the anti-Semitism that we see raging on college campuses. So I think the investigation is going to uncover much, much more. This is just, you know, about the university president on top of the institution, but it's an institutional rot that we are addressing because these colleges get billions of taxpayer dollars. Mm -hmm. Technically, they got her on plagiarism, but it's very clear And I haven't reviewed the plagiarism allegations, but it's very clear that this is about Israel and that this is a neo-McCarthyism and that if you allow people to say things that are critical of Israel, you will be uh, removed from power. That's exactly what it's about. I mean, whatever the merits of the allegations against her when it comes to academic misconduct, uh, this would not have happened if not for uh, her tolerating free speech on campus. And uh, that's what this is about. Now, unfortunately, these university presidents made a huge mistake in accepting the premise of Elise Stefanik's questions, which is that calling for Palestinian freedom is tantamount to genocide. What they should have said was that, no, you're not allowed to support genocide on campus to encourage genocide, but those Palestinians are not calling for genocide. They're just calling for freedom. And it's it's not up to, to adjudicate um, a Jew decade. Sorry. Yeah. Like to, you know, like to govern free speech that way. I mean, right. but they couldn't do that. So they put themselves in this position and the Republicans and their allies took advantage of this. And now she gets ousted for the crime of allowing free speech on campus. And Katie, guess what? The students of Harvard can now feel secure because they've just announced Clyde and Gay's temporary replacement. And it's a white Jewish man. Here he is. All right. Thank you, Alan Gerber. So Harvard President Claudine Gay succeeded by interim President Alan Gerber, a Jewish critic of Harvard's weak stance on anti-Semitism and supporter of DEI initiatives. So great job. First of all, great job, Katie. I, I think you, I think you agree with me speaking on behalf of Jews for to fellow Jews like Alan Gerber for perpetuating yeah. stereotypes that we like control everything. Yeah. And in this case, get a black woman fired. Right. Uh, I mean, it's just like it's so embarrassing and it really is not that I care too much about the Ivy League and, you know, I don't hold it with the reverence that we're supposed to hold these schools with. But, you know, there is something called academic, academic freedom. Yeah. And it has under, a chilling effect, too. Absolutely does. And it is under assault. But look, just to show you how lame all this all this is, this has gotten so lame that The New York Times got three reporters recently, three reporters to do a story on how Jewish Harvard students feel scared. This is the headline. I'm scared already. <laughs> Feeling alone and estranged, many Jews at Harvard wonder what's next. After one of the most trying weeks in the university's recent history, some students question whether they have a place on campus. So they got three 
reporters at the New York Times to write about some heavy lift. Some Jewish students at Harvard feel estranged because other students there are calling for an end to a genocide against Palestine. But look how funny this is because the Times also also has to admit that the Jewish population on campus at Harvard is not a monolith because there are actually Jewish students that are protesting for Palestine. This is what the Times said. For students who are feeling increasingly isolated, it did not help that many of their Jewish peers had joined the pro-Palestinian demonstrations. Wow, it's almost like it's not about being Jewish. <laughs> and where's the article on the Jewish students at, Har- at Harvard who are like joining to oppose yeah, exactly. the genocide? How come they right. can't get an article if yeah. they're going to write one? Right, isn't that newsworthy? And everyone on the left or the everyone who claims to be a liberal Zionist who's cheerleading what's happening should know that Elise Stefanik puts forward uh, a replacement theory and is a Trump Republican. So- Congratulations. That's your political fellow traveler. Okay, for isn't that weird, let's turn to a very bizarre theft that happened in Florida. Of course, it happened in Florida. All of our weird and terrible seem to emanate from Florida, and this is no exception. Come home and my driveway's gone. Amanda Brochu isn't exaggerating. What used to be a concrete slab outside 1438 Bethesda Street is now a patch of dirt that she didn't ask for. Someone took her driveway as she was trying to get ready for Christmas. Of all the things that you worried about getting stolen, did you think the driveway was one of them? (laughs) No, not at all. Brochu says it all started when she put her home up for sale. Strange contractors started coming by, measuring her driveway. Her son counted five of them. One told Brochu a Tampa area man identified as Andre asked them to price out a replacement. Text messages supplied by the contractor showed Andre asking the contractors for an estimate and giving the Bethesda Street address. But Andre was out of town when this contractor asked for an in-person meeting and then cut off communication when asked for proof of ownership. Brochu called law enforcement. After the cops uh, spoke to them, they called me back and they said that he said it was a mistake. He just got the address wrong. Nothing else will happen again. One week later, this image from Brochu's doorbell camera captured a bulldozer tearing out the concrete and hauling it away. Very weird. So do I have this right? So somebody texted a contractor posing as her as the homeowner trying to get a measurement, like an estimate on that driveway. So they were trying to basically get a contractor to help them out in this in this theft. I couldn't follow it. Or was it that the contractor was scamming her and asking where she was? And then when she wasn't there, they removed the driveway. I see. Strange contractors. Th- those are the culprits. Very weird. I didn't know people could steal a driveway. Me either. But a PSA to anyone out there, if you're thinking about stealing a driveway, don't do it. First of all, it seems pretty time intensive for the payoff. It does, yeah. I mean, that, that's but also on top of just basic morality, not stealing. But just think practically here. Is it is it really worth all this effort yeah, this for a driveway? I hope they get caught. Pretty inconsiderate. I think you're right, Aaron. Your interpretation of it, by the way, was right. It is very confusing, though. It's very confusing. And, you know, fair enough. It makes sense it's confusing because... It's a stolen driveway, and yeah, why the hell did someone steal a driveway? Right. How could that not be confusing? Yeah. yeah. Well, for isn't that terrible, um, let's take a look at this tweet from Axios journalist Barack Ravid, who is, is reporting that Israeli officials say Netanyahu wants Alan Dershowitz to represent Israel at the CIJ 
ICJ hearing next week about South Africa's accusation that it is conducting genocide in Gaza. I called Alan Dirsch, who didn't deny, and said I can't comment about it at this time. Well, if uh, it's Alan Dershowitz going up against South Africa in a court of law over uh, an apartheid state committing genocide. I don't know who to believe. Yeah, who do you believe in that one? Who's going to make Dershowitz? the better case? Yeah. 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 I mean, what South Africa did, and for those who missed it, South Africa submitted this really detailed brief to the ICJ invoking the Genocide Convention and basically charging Israel with genocide. And the ICJ is going to have to rule on this now. And if Israel is getting Alan Dershowitz to represent them, I think that'd be amazing. That's that's a sign. I think Israel is in trouble, to to put it mildly. On you know, um, but the brief is really exhaustive, and it's um, it's very, really really well done. And of course, it helps that there's so much evidence. Yeah, exactly. Of the genocide, from not just the act on the gr- all the killings on the ground to the statements of Israeli right. officials. Yeah, as as uh, Craig McIver. Uh, from the who resigned from the UN explained to us, usually you have to do all this digging to find to prove the genocidal intent, but Israel just says the quiet part out loud. So that's an, isn't that terrible? Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. We are very excited to speak to Munter Isak. He is a Palestinian Christian theologian and pastor at the Evangelical Lutheran Church in Bethlehem. He's the author of several books, including The Other Side of the Wall, A Palestinian Christian Narrative of Lament and Hope. And as people may know, uh, Christmas was canceled this year in Bethlehem, but um, Munther did deliver a liturgy of lament called Christ in the Rubble. And they also, in the nave of uh, his church, they made a nativity scene with the baby Jesus wrapped in a traditional Palestinian kafia scarf resting on top of a pile of rubble. And his liturgy uh, went viral. All right, let's go to Reverend Munter Isaac. Thank you so much for joining Munter Isaac from Bethlehem. Um, Please tell us what is happening right now as we speak in Bethlehem. Yeah, thank you for having me, uh, Katie. Um, Since October 7th, Bethlehem has been under a very strict siege, uh, like all the other uh, cities and towns uh, in the West Bank. Uh, Many uh, exits or entrances of uh, Bethlehem have been closed with blockades, not even a checkpoint, but completely blocking the road. Um, some checkpoints open in very limited hours to, for people to enter in and out. Uh, it's causing a lot of discomfort for uh, many Palestinians who have to go on a daily basis to Jerusalem. Um, and at the same time, many who used to work in Jerusalem, the very few who actually had uh, a permit from the Israeli military to, to work in Jerusalem have lost their job, uh, their jobs since then. This year has also witnessed an uh, unprecedented number of insurgents into Bethlehem, especially into the refugee camps, Dehesha, uh, Azza, uh, Waida. 
and many young Palestinians have been killed in these incursions. And around us in the remote villages, as you all have heard, an increased number of settler attacks on uh, isolated villagers. It's really becoming scary to travel outside of the cities, not just Bethlehem. Uh, as you know, in, in the West Bank, uh, everything is fragmented. And to go from where I am in Bethlehem, for example, to Ramallah, we have to go through roads that are controlled uh, by Israel, by the Israeli military or the settlers. Uh, and it's not always safe. And we're trying to avoid these uh, these trips. So um, it's been very complicated uh, since October 7th, but even throughout the year since, uh, to be honest, this new government, not new anymore. Having said all of this, this feels nothing in comparison to what's happening in Gaza, unfortunately. Uh, you know, I feel even bad just talking about it because right um, right now in Gaza, as you all know, it's, it's horrible. You delivered a uh, liturgy of lament called Christ in the Rubble, and we're going to play an excerpt from that. Gaza today has become the moral compass of the world. Gaza was hell before October 7th, and the world was silent. Should we be surprised that there's silence now? If you are not appalled by what is happening in Gaza, if you are not shaken to your core, there is something wrong with your humanity. And if we as Christians are not outraged by the genocide, by the weaponization of the Bible to justify it, there is something wrong with our Christian witness and we are compromising the credibility of our gospel message. If you fail to call this a genocide, it is on you. It is a sin and a darkness you willingly embrace. Some have not even called for a ceasefire. I'm talking about churches. I feel sorry for you. We will be okay. Despite the immense blow we have endured, we the Palestinians will recover. We will rise. We will stand up again from the midst of destruction as we have always done as Palestinians. Although this is by far maybe the biggest blow we have received in a long time, but we will be okay. But for those who are complicit, I feel sorry for you. Will you ever recover from this? So what inspired you to deliver that liturgy? And also, what has the response been like? I think my uh, first words of that sermon summarize everything. We're angry. We're angry and broken. Angry because this is not, this is no longer a quote-unquote response, as they try to convince us it, it is. This, is, uh, this has been going now for almost what, 86, 87 days, non-stop killing uh, of civilians and children, uh, destruction of everything in Gaza. Uh, I think the uh, Israeli leaders told us what they were going to do, and they did it. Uh, they were going to destroy Gaza completely. They looked at all Palestinians in Gaza and said there are no innocent civilians. Everybody is a target. And we've seen this happening. And the images we see are horrifying, are, are literally horrifying. We receive lots of images on our social media from uh, the courageous journalists who are risking everything to broadcast the genocide of Gaza. Like the, the people of Gaza are broadcasting their genocide on air, you know. 
and we're horrified. We're horrified by the images. And it's not as if, as I said, it's one incident. It's a response one week, two weeks. It's been going for three months now almost. And the world continued to justify it. And I think now the world got used to it. So um, the idea that world leaders justify the killing of our children, rationalize it, even give theology to support it, uh, provide the theological cover just as they did the Buddha political cover, have not called for a ceasefire. And now I think the world has become numb to it. It's no longer news, you know. 400 were killed today. Okay, 300 were killed today. Uh, to us, this is, you know, it makes us angry how the world is reacting to an ongoing genocide. Again, this has not happened within a frame of two weeks where there was a fierce battle and people were killed. This is ongoing. We can stop it if we have the will, but it seems no one has the will. It seems the world does not look at Palestinians at equal as equals. Uh, and I just wanted to let my frustration out. I think... I'm also personally too tired of church leaders who are too soft, too kind, uh, hiding beyond the idea of neutrality and praying for peace. I don't think as faith leaders, this is our calling in, in a world that is full of so much uh, darkness. Uh, I think we have to speak for uh, those without a voice, for the powerless, for, uh, for the oppressed. And this is why I, I said this message for the people of Gaza to speak for them, especially in a time when so much attention was on Bethlehem because of the cancellation of the celebrations of Christmas. But I also wanted to speak to the Christian world, being a Christian myself and a Christian leader in Bethlehem, that uh, you have to speak. You can't continue to be silent. And actually with some of them, as I said, it's already too late. I don't want you to speak. You know, you've been complicit and uh, any words of... Uh, discomfort now and you're troubled and all of that, you know, we're, we're not going to buy that. I'm, I'm sorry. You know, it's it's on you, as I said. I, I never expected this sermon to receive this month's attention. I'm grateful for those who amplified our voice to begin with the uh, American Christian uh, organizations, many of them actually evangelicals who said we're troubled by our own community's complicity in this. We want you to speak to our community. So this was the original idea. Uh, and from then it went viral, and I'm I'm grateful for that. I think it showed a different face to to the Palestinians. Many <laughs> did not know Palestinian Christians exist. Uh, I think it challenged the narrative that this is a religious conflict. I'm, I'm, I think to me this is a very powerful uh, idea. I mean, we have to challenge the narrative, the dominant narrative that this is a religious conflict. Uh, to have a, a Christian leader in Christmas uh, talk on Christ under the rubble, Christ in solidarity with the children of Gaza. I think that shocked many people around the world and still, you know, they're thinking. Uh, it might be too late to stop what's happening in Gaza, but at least people are now uh, aware that something is radically wrong and something must change, uh, I hope. So it's been overwhelming, to be honest, uh, the response. Uh, but it's this is our responsibility as faith leaders. This is my responsibility as a pastor to speak out. And uh, we've done it, and I'm grateful for uh, for the response. I know that you were recently in the U.S., and uh, Washington is full of politicians who claim that they're Christian, claim to love Jesus. What was the response that you got uh, when you tried to appeal to some of these people during your trip to Washington? It's not only that they love, you know, they are Christians and uh, claim to be always, you know, churchgoers and Christians. But they also claim that they support the Christians of the Middle East. And to me, this is a big problem. I mean, 
we will dif- you know we can differ on which brand of christianity we adopt and there are conservatives there are liberals there are mainline there are evangelicals and we don't look alike i know but at least don't claim to care for me and then totally ignore my perspective and positions and actually continue to dismiss me as if we don't exist it's been disheartening to be honest very disheartening because here I am carrying a letter signed by church leaders in Bethlehem, all the churches in Bethlehem, the Orthodox, the Catholics, the Armenians, the Syrians, the Protestants. Uh, we all signed the letter. And I thought at least this, you know, would draw at least attention, sympathy. They meant they were courteous, especially the Republicans. Uh, but they were clear, this war must continue. And what I could not get is their insistence that they care for religious liberty and for uh, the future of Christians in the Middle East when they know too well that this war, for example, will bring an end to the longest Christian, one of the longest Christian traditions in the Middle East, in Gaza. And I think, Aaron, to be honest, that uh, many American Christians um, have this idea of American nationalism embedded in it is support to Israel and alliance to Israel. Uh, maybe it's the American Christian nationalism to some. And their alliance and identity as aligned with Israel trumps even their allegiance to Middle Eastern Christians or to anything else. I think when someone like Mike Johnson says openly, as Christians, the Bible tells us to support Israel. I mean, I want to ask, just like that, what if Israel commits war crimes? Are you supposed to support Israel nevertheless, regardless? And it seems that this is the attitude. Israel can do no wrong. Uh, and at best, they get a small you know, slap on the hand. But God tells us to support Israel. We have to support Israel. And as I said, it's part of this Christian identity that they feel America has and 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 to them, it trumps everything else, even course for justice, uh, even, you know, uh, to the extent of dehumanizing Palestinians. I mean, I say, how are you not appalled with 9,000 children killed in three months? It's unprecedented numbers. Um, and it's not just killed in any way. Do you see the pictures of children crying out? I mean, weeping in, in the hospitals, burnt out completely, losing their parents. Uh, it's horrifying. It's traumatizing, to be honest. And uh, we can't just ignore and, 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 and go numb and ignore these things. But it seems to many they don't want even to, to see or to watch. We know that they've been performing amputations without anesthesia, which is like, I mean, I don't know how people sleep at night knowing that that's happening. The whole world is not able to convince Israel to bring the needed humanitarian support to, to the hospitals, at least, or food. It's heartbreaking to see the... Uh, how the people of Gaza run behind the trucks of food because, you know, they're starving, literally starving. I am in touch with the Christians in the churches in Gaza. And so far, uh, in the church itself, we've lost three people uh, from sickness. Uh, they just die because there's no medicine, no hospitals. I mean, if you get sick right now in Gaza, chances are very high that you will, you will not survive. We're, listening, we're, we're receiving pictures and reports of dead bodies in the streets and, sorry to say, animals eating eating these dead bodies. And then, yeah, the operations without Anastasia. I, I know someone who did this, uh, uh, the aunt of a good friend of mine. And, you know, we're just horrified to think of the ideal. 
try to imagine being the person who had to go through this uh, this surgery. When I say it's hell on earth, it is hell on earth. And sadly, it's been hell on earth even before October 7. But now this is, I don't know if there are levels to hell, but this is horrifying. And this aunt is someone who had the surgery or per- performed it or under underwent it? She underwent it, yes. It's, it's horrible. I mean, she had to, uh, she was um, hit when the church, uh, the Orthodox church building collapsed from bombing. And uh, she had to do hip uh, replacement surgery, something in her hips. I mean, the, the amount of pain is, is, is horrible. Uh, the pictures we see from those in the church, they're start, I mean, they don't look the same. It's, yeah. And can you tell us uh, about the Christian community in Gaza? Uh, I know that I believe there are three churches in Gaza. Two of them, at least, have been uh, attacked during this Israeli genocide campaign, uh, including the Greek Orthodox Church, which was bombed. And I believe the other church is where that's where an Israeli sniper killed two two people, two, a, a woman and a, a girl, and I think. Yeah. A woman and her daughter were yeah. killed uh, in the uh, vicinity. The Holy of- Family Church. Yes, yeah. the Catholic Church. Yeah. Uh, the Baptist Church is a small church, but uh, it was also damaged uh, severely from the bombing, uh, next to it at least. Um, but it was damaged, uh, uh, and the as I you know the Catholic Church uh, buildings were damaged. There is also a cultural center uh, for the Orthodox Church that is brand new uh, with a theater uh, for arts and exhibitions and. Uh, that was just constructed and opened all, I think, last year. That was completely totaled, totaled, uh, leveled to the ground. Israel is killing everything. I mean, destroying everything. Uh, cultural centers, schools, universities. When, when people begin talking about the uh, hour after the war ends and what happens the day after the war ends, I think it's going to take years or months to just remove the rubble. And then there is no infrastructure. Israel is, is, is clear. They don't want people to live in Gaza anymore. Uh, and the world seems to be watching and, and, and we're seeing. The Christian community in Gaza, you've asked, is now most of it, all of it, almost most of it is either in the Catholic Church, the majority, and some are still in the Orthodox Church despite the attack. Uh, they live in trauma. They live in fear uh, because they know it's not safe. And they know that they are not uh, protected, um, that anything could happen at any moment. Uh, two days ago, a friend of mine there sent me a picture of a bullet that hit, he said, next to his head. He don't know where it came from. Uh, so to live in constant fear that your life could end at any moment, I, I can't even imagine that. And then very, very little food. The psychological impact of knowing that your homes are destroyed. Most of the homes of the Christian community, they told us, have been destroyed either partially or completely. So um, they're hoping to survive, but then they don't know what they're going to do. They've made the uh, conscious decision not to go to the south. Uh, They are among the few who decided to remain in the city center of Gaza, despite the battles around them. One of them told, told me, if I'm going to die, I'd rather die in the church and not uh, go to the unknown. Others say, we don't want to end up in Sinai. Uh, At least here, we're together. And if something happens to us, it happens to us together. So they're taking a very, very resilient stand, very courageous stand, but they're living in unbearable 
human circumstances uh, in the most the most difficult you know possible uh, circumstances we have a clip speaking of christians in gaza uh there's a clip of deputy mayor of jerusalem fleur nahum being asked about the snipers uh shooting and killing of the woman and her daughter uh let's take a look at this and what what fleur nahum says if a ceasefire means the return of the hostages and the dismantlement of a genocidal regime that has stated that they're going to attack us again, then everybody would be in favor of a ceasefire. But if a ceasefire means that we're just going to keep them quiet for a bit until they attack again, then it's Israel's obligation to defend its citizens and destroy that threat, don't you think? Why is it necessary, it would, is reported, to start shooting, having snipers outside a church? I don't. I saw the reports this morning. Um, the church. There are no churches in Gaza, so I'm not quite sure where the report well, is, is, is talking a, about. There's a Catholic church in there, isn't there? That is. Yeah. Unfortunately, the... there are no Christians because they were dry, dro driven, driven out by. Well, there some are Christians. respectfully there are Christians because I spoke to an MP yesterday who has family members in the church who are Christians. Well, I don't Unless know what happened. I don't know who was attacked. I didn't see the report. Yeah, I don't know if she's deceptive or ignorant and I know which one is worse to be honest we've been saying it for years that it serves the Zionist agenda the Zionist narrative to promote the conflict as a religious one and that's why I think our mere existence as Palestinian Christians troubles them as we continue to insist that this is not a religious conflict but how can you not know that there are Christians in Gaza honestly how, how can you not know about one of the oldest Christian traditions in the world that had produced uh, so much of the Christian history is related actually to Gaza from biblical times to today, uh, to the medieval times when there were poets and philosophers and you know, uh, that we still study their literature uh, from Gaza. How can you not know or, or how can you even if you knew and eliminate that, it's even more evil. But notice how she said uh, Hamas eliminated uh, again, that, that's that's the main point. That's the main point to say uh, we're fighting Hamas and Hamas fights Christians and they're coming next to you in America or in England. That's that's the main point. Uh, the idea of demonizing uh, all Palestinians uh, and promoting the narrative that uh, Christians are persecuted in uh, in uh, in the Middle East and in Palestine. And I'm you know. Uh, if people really care, they would listen to us. We, we will tell you how we're doing. Uh, things might not have been ideal under Hamas for the Christians. I mean, to be honest, they were not ideal. Uh, but Christians were not killed or driven out on purpose, systematically, from Gaza because of Hamas or by Hamas. Uh, Christians who left Gaza in the last 16 years have left because of the siege. Uh, if there was the opportunity for them to go back and forth to their homes, they would you know, I, I know, they're my friends. <laughs> but it serves a purpose to say that Muslims drive them out. We've heard this all the time, by the way, in Bethlehem, that, you know, look at the percentage of Christians, how it declined in Bethlehem because of the Palestinian Authority. No, it's not because of the Palestinian Authority. It's because uh, we live under an apartheid system. It's impossible to thrive as a community under an apartheid system. It's impossible to, to thrive when you have to be stopped at the checkpoint, leaving Bethlehem to go to Ramallah and now entering Ramallah if people just walk in our shoes for one day and understand what it means to live under occupation and apartheid, 
you, you will understand why people are leaving and why it's so hard for anybody to build a future here or to survive uh, to survive here. Uh, it's uh, it's to be honest, it's despicable to be used in such a way to promote a certain narrative. And again, if people really con are concerned about the Christian community, I suggest by talking to us first. And we will tell you what our problem is. We will tell you what the challenges are. And, and don't try to promote that we're driven out by whatever it's Palestinian Authority or Hamas. Yeah, it reminds me of the way that um, people love to call say that Hamas is like ISIS because they want to, as you said, create this fear that there's this transnational internationalist project and that they're you know targeting Christians uh, or or Muslims who aren't you know or tech theorists. Yeah, I think every empire needs uh, the axis of evil to survive to promote itself as the axis of good. Uh, for a while, it was the communists. Now it was now it is Islam, Hamas. It's the constant demonization of of Palestinians. It's beyond the dehumanization of us. I, I call it the mentality of walls, um, and. I've been saying this for even long before October 7th. If you want to understand how the world is okay with the siege in Gaza, uh, which, you know, how, how is the world, you know, how was the world fine with that? I'm talking about before October 7th. It's because this idea of wars, first you separate, you, you, you disengage, then you dehumanize, you demonize, you create fear, and then uh, uh, you even justify they're bombing, and then you blame them for it. Uh, and this is how the world was okay with uh, the siege on, on, on uh, you know, all uh, 2.3 million Palestinians in Gaza. They brought it on themselves, they told us. You know, it's, it's this... Uh, and the whole idea that they, they, they elected Hamas. I mean, have to have some integrity at least in reporting and, and tell what happened, you know, where, when it happened and how it happened and who voted and what happened then and how can you blame those now who were not even born, many of them, when this happened uh, on Hamas. And uh, the, the, the way people talk about Palestinians is so disheartening. Another thing that we've seen that's kind of uh, a pathetic, I think, excuse or defense of Israel is that, well, Hamas is responsible for everything that happened because everything that Israel is doing is because of what Hamas did on October 7th. No, we, we've seen two things. So... Um, uh, first, the isolation of October 7th, uh, as, you know, they isolate that incident, make all the focus on what happened October 7th. Uh, it's horrifying what happened on October 7th. I cannot justify or accept the killing of children and families in their homes and, and the kidnapping of children, noting that Palestinian children have been kidnapped for a long time and no one cares because, you know. That's, that's that's a sad point. But uh, singling out or isolating October 7th apart from a context of 75 years of oppression is part of that narrative that gives the cover for this genocide. This war did not start in October 7th. We have to be clear about this. Uh, this is about the 75 years of oppression and it continues. The people of Gaza are refugees, 70% of them. In other words, the state of Israel was built on the ruins of the towns and villages of the very same people of Gaza. How did we forget this? How was this uh, ignored in every, uh, uh, you know, I, I, can't, I can't understand how people always isolate 
October 7th begin from it. And, uh, and, and the idea of October 7th uh, serves another important tool, which is uh, making Israel the victim. Uh, and so now it's the colonizers who are the victim defending themselves. Israel has the right to defend itself. So, you know, the colonizer now has the right to defend itself from the colonizer. And everyone seems okay with it. Yeah, everyone is fine. And, you know, one church leader after the other, one political leader, I mean, from the superpowers, came to Tel Aviv or Jerusalem the week after October 7th. And they all repeated this, including many church leaders. And who's, 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 the, who's, who's the colonizer and who's the colonized? Uh, the idea of Israel has the right to defend itself. All these rhetorics, I think, many times are repeated uh, and they frame the discussion in a way that makes the Palestinians always uh, on the wrong. Uh, even the idea of Hamas taking Palestinians as human shields, which is you know, a, a very popular <laughs> uh, thing right now. You think of it and... Um, if, uh, and I told this to uh, some of the journalists who came to Bethlehem to see me after uh, the, the manger we created. And I said, and they've asked me about this. And I said, if if a serial killer, let's say in Tennessee, uh, a, a very, very neutral serial killer, he's really bad. He's, and uh, he runs from the police, goes to a school of your children and kidnaps all these schools, all these children. Would you bomb the school just to kill that serial killer? Really? Would you, would you justify that? And I say you would only do it in one case if those were not children but animals. Uh, and I know it's, 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 it's strong language, but this is how we view the world talking about us, you know, uh, when they use the idea that it's Hamas's fault for using Palestinians as, as human sheets. Uh, so much of, this, uh, of the, this genocide and this war that's happening right now has to do with the narrative and framing it. And, and, I, and I want to... Yeah, I think we need to do our best in challenging that, uh, that, that narrative. And you've said that this is not a religious conflict. So what, what is this con- conflict or occupation? What is this really about? Settler colonialism. I mean, come on. 75 years ago, we were in our homes. Uh, we were in our towns. We were in our villages. And Zionists came from Europe with the idea, not, not just to find home with us, I mean, let's be clear. The idea was uh, to uh, expel us and take our land and establish a home for the Jewish people uh, on historic Palestine. That's why I call it settler colonialism. They colonized our land. They kicked us out and settled in our place. This is how it started. We have to deal with the conflict uh, as, 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 as is, you know. It's not a conflict. Pray, you know, Framing it as a conflict gives the impression that there are two people in the same land fighting uh, over disputed areas. Uh, this is not the case. Not only there are not, you know, two, is, you know, not unequal systems here or structures, one country has been literally dominating the other and uh, controlling every aspect of our life. When, when we talk about apartheid, we're talking about how Israel controls everything. Uh, and have placed rules and regulations and restrictions on everything we do as Palestinians, from where we live, what whether we can get water or not. We can't even I, I can't even dig for water, uh, in you know as Palestinians you know this, uh, the network systems, the electricity, the water where we can build we cannot build on the majority of the West Bank now, uh, 
the roads we can drive at, uh, the family registration system. I have friends who are not able to unite and family members who are not able to unite. Friends who are not able to unite with their spouses because Israel controls the family registration system and would not allow the spouses to come here even on a spousal visa. This is how cruel, cruel the system is. They control everything. Don't get the impression that we have a state or we have sovereignty or independence as Palestinians. Uh, we live under the mercy of Israel in everything, uh, in everything uh, we do. I always use the metaphor because I speak a lot to church leaders and I say I'm tired of the language of peace and praying for reconciliation because it gives the impression there are two men fighting. I, I use this metaphor. We don't have two men fighting. We have one man literally stepping on the throat of the other and you lecturing the person who's on the ground about peace. This is this is the language we have. And again, this is these are all the things we've been talking about before October 7th. And now we see it repeated, but on a horrifying scale, unfortunately, and tragically. I'm wondering um, your response to Israeli leaders like Netanyahu. They've invoked the Bible, passages from the Bible, to justify the genocide. Netanyahu talking about um, Amalek. Uh, and how in the Bible, basically, um, I believe it's King Saul who says we have to wipe out Amalek, and Netanyahu is basically invoking the a, a similar argument. Um, I'm wondering your response to that, and also, you know, what teachings from the Bible, what teachings of Jesus you've turned to to make sense of this time. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiotspodcast.com. Very grateful to Reverend Isak for joining us. Very powerful. When he talks about how he feels almost bad discussing the plight of Palestinians in the West Bank because of the genocide in Gaza, it really brings home just what a historical monstrosity this whole thing is that, you know, even as the West Bank is being besieged, terrorized, there are raids by Israel, checkpoints, killings, terror, killings every horror imaginable. The people there feel bad speaking about it because of the genocide going on in Gaza. And his work is so important, especially as so many religious leaders uh, remain silent or even encourage this. Um, it's so important to have people of faith actually talk about uh, faith in a way that is pro-human being and not pro-genocide. Yeah, the way Israel and the U.S. use faith and religion is to justify uh, all these policies that violate everything that their religious leaders taught. You know, uh, Jesus taught peace, um, and it's one of many just unspeakable ironies of this whole situation that in the right. name of, of the teachings of, of, of peace, people are justifying genocide. You know, and his experience of going to Washington and trying to speak to people and getting the cold shoulder, this like this uh, reverend from the birthplace of Jesus can't even get an audience, a fair hearing in right. Washington, which is filled with people who claim to love Jesus, love the Bible. And love Christians, as he yeah. pointed out, and love Christians in, in the Middle East. Yeah. And, you know, it is, as he mentioned, if you are Muslim and you use religion to justify policies. You're slammed as a theocrat, as backwards, but if you do it to justify Zionism, it's a-okay. Yeah. You can be Speaker of the House, for instance. All right. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us. As always, we are at usefulidiotspodcast.com. Go there to support the show and get bonus content, and we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. 
Thanks so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For extended episodes, bonus content, and our weekly Thursday Throwdown episode, please subscribe at UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com. Support the show for free by subscribing on YouTube, Rumble, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the podcast, don't forget to rate and review. You can also follow us on Twitter at UsefulIdiotPod. Thanks for supporting independent media. We'll see you next time.